Now is again that wonderful time we have together to take our Bibles and open them so that we can consider God's Word together. This week we are in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to back up just a little and and read some of the section that we read last week into the section that we will consider today. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 21, and then we'll pray and consider God's rich word together. Listen as I read God's word. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we open your word, we do so with the great and strong sense that it is your holy word given by a holy God, and that every part of it has something that we are to receive, whether it is for our correction, for our understanding, a rebuke, a reproof, a training in righteousness, we know that your word has purpose. And we pray, O God, that you would be pleased by your spirit to accomplish that purpose this morning in this passage. Lord, it is always my desire that you would assist me, that I would be able to communicate the things that are in this passage uh, with a succinctness and a clarity. And we just... um, Thank you for the privilege that we have to consider this uh, work that you wrought through Paul in Athens. Lord, may we be both challenged and encouraged as we consider. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, uh, laying this groundwork, they came to Philippi, and that was in the area of Macedonia. And then from there also, they've moved on to Thessalonia and Berea. Now in the passage we're looking at today, they're leaving, Paul is leaving Macedonia and he's going down to Athens. But before moving on, just by way of things that, that help us in our mind as we read and as we study the word, I don't want us to miss a few things that are even in these passages as we get to them. One of the things I want us to note very clearly is this, it says in verse 13, It says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea. I like that because I want us to note this. It's not that Paul never wants it to be Paul's message. Never wants it to be his opinion. His view versus other views. He's very clear about this. And, And Luke brings this out. What is it that Paul went and preached? 
he declared the word of God there too. Men's opinions, we've talked about this before, are really insignificant to the point of irrelevant. And I want to give you an example of that even within this particular context. Now, uh, at times, there there are scripture passages that, that lay out for us some of the distinctive roles and responsibilities that God has given to men and women in the context of family and to men and women distinctive in the context of church. We're thankful that with regard to salvation and with regard to relationship with God, there is no Jew nor Greek, there is no uh, barbarian Scythian, there is no slave nor free, there is no male or female, we are all one in Christ. We have that access and boldness through Christ. Yet there are distinctions within the family and distinctions within the functioning of the church. The scripture lays out that from time to time, oddly, men will say, well, the reason why we don't do this today is because back in those days, blah, 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 blah. They'll say, for example, Back in those days, uh, women did not receive education. Back in those days, women did not hold roles of prominence. Back in those days, women uh, uh, were not leaders in religious scenarios. And they'll, they'll often say back in those days. Maybe they'll precede it by even saying something so bold as, uh, everybody knows that back in those days. Now, once somebody initiates a conversation by saying everybody knows... The people listening don't want to be the one who's not in the know. So there's this weird inner temptation to say, yeah, that must be right. I know that too. Yeah, I know that too. No, no, no. Uh, is that necessarily the case? And part of the challenge that you do face is it does seem in, in the first century Jewish community, there was less of a tendency towards ed- educational opportunities uh, for the Jewish women. And the Jewish women did not have significant roles in terms of the synagogue. The passages we're looking at in Acts 17 are not in Jerusalem. They're not in Judea. They're not in Samaria. They are in a different culture. And it's into these different cultures such as Corinth and others that particular instruction as to how churches are to function are given. Not necessarily in the Jewish culture, and I don't do, do want to draw your attention to the simple clarity uh, before we move on to the essence of today's message in Acts chapter 17, verse 12. As they had shared the gospel, and as the grace of God opened hearts and minds to see and understand and believe that which uh, was shared from the word of God, it says in verse 12, many of them therefore believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing. Hint, in that society, women could attain positions of high standing. The same sentence was said in in, in Acts chapter 13 verse 50. Speaks of the conversion of a number of women of high standing. And if you dare... You could go back in chapter 17 with me and read verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. How dare you? What do you mean, how dare I? We learn that in the Macedonian, in the, in the Greek, and in the Roman context into which we are looking, it's different than we're often told. Remember, just in the previous chapter, we came across Lydia. Lydia was a remarkably accomplished, independent, able businesswoman who oversaw her own business as well as her own what they would call household, which would include employees and slaves. She ran that business. There were women who would hold prominent roles in the local political community. In the Greek and Roman religions, you had 
not only gods, but goddesses. We're going today to visit Athens, which is named after Athena, which is a goddess. And in many of the temples of goddesses, they were oft overseen by priestesses. <laughs> and they had prophets and prophetesses. I know that's a lot of S's when you pile them together. But, but the sense is, uh, what the scripture, we, you've got to understand this. The scripture will communicate things in a way that can, that rightly communicates within that culture. But the scripture never capitulates to the culture. It never gives in to the culture. It's often countercultural. So it will communicate things in the language and in the style and in the phrasing so that people in that culture would get what is being said. But sometimes it would make them scratch their head. Well, why can't we do this? And why can't we do like that? And why can't... And it, the scripture was never about accommodating or appropriating the culture of the world. It was about setting forth this is God's word, this is God's way. You might find some similarities in your culture to it. You might find some differences. It doesn't matter either way. This is God's way. And so it's important for us to know that and keep that in mind as, as, as we move forward. Many of the churches into which Paul speaks and gives the distinctive roles in the home and in the church, it, it, it's, it's not uh, uh, to a, a suppressed women's society. It's to a, a society in which women bear significant successful roles. Okay. Now, I want to, to begin to dig into what we are looking at now today. As we come down to verse uh, 15, they, they decide we've got to get Paul out of here before the Thessalonians uh, mess him up again. We've already indicated with what Paul has experienced, it, it could be that he's still pressing on and carrying on the ministry while not necessarily 100% healed of every broken bone, of every visible bruise and scratch and scar. And so they're looking at this guy and we got to get him out of here. And a group, it seems that he's conducted by some of the believers. Uh, uh, Silas and Timothy stay there. And the, he's taken completely this time out of Macedonia to Athens. Now, as he comes down to Athens... Want us to, to, to see just a little something about that. I'm going to lay a little bit more background before I go into some of the essence of things. All the history of Athens it isn't all that significant to us because it's, it's not about a history lesson. But sometimes to, to understand a few things about it helps us to put these things in context. Athens was, to a large extent, an extent extreme cultural center of both religion and education. It was, it was the place of Socrates and Plato and Epicurus and, and, and many of the well-known philosophers. They had taught Zeno, Philo, they had taught there in Athens. Some of the uh, poets and writers of that day, because of how many statues and idols were all over the city, jokingly said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a human. It, it seemed that almost at the entry of, of every gate, every quarter of the city, every building and area of significance, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, all over the place. Uh, the, the, it was a, a place where these people were so filled with a confidence concerning themselves. Look what it says. Um, in, in verse 17 and 18, it says, um, some Epicureans, or verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 18, some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I don't know to what degree you understand what an Epicurean 
philosopher is and what a stoic philosopher is. I mean, we grow up in an age where an Epicurean delight usually would be a delicious bit of food on a plate. Usually, you know, when you see a restaurant that speaks of an Epicurean delight, it's like, all right, that's like two bites. How useful is that? Um, that wasn't really the original Epicureans. The original Epicureans would be having the plate full and overflowing. They were given to indulgence. They're not quite the hedonists in the pursuit of just pleasure, but the Epicureans were in pursuit of happiness. I mean, if you were to ask the Epicureans to write a declaration of independence, they would probably say something like this. We should, we should be committed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's kind of what they would come up with. This is what we're all about. You're in a dangerous situation when your pursuit is happiness. For those of us who are in Christ, we pursue holiness. Right? Without which no one may see God. And that pursuit of holiness indeed is really a pursuit of Christ and Christ-likeness. Because what we come to find out is actually true, abiding joy and happiness is in a life that is living to the pleasure of God. To know that He is pleased, to know that even though this was hard and even though others reviled against it and against me, someday He will look on me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we, we say, hey... The world can say what it does. And they might even say, why are you denying yourself these present available indulgences? Well, we don't give ourselves to gluttony. We don't give ourselves to drunkenness. We don't give ourselves to those things because, well, we're warned not to by the scriptures. We receive everything that we receive with thankfulness to God. But the Epicurean idea, it was just mistaken. But it wasn't only the pursuit of happiness by indulgence of things. It was also, you got to try to put out of your mind all the things that are bad. And one of the biggest things that men suffer with, and the scripture reminds us of this, is a fear of death. I think we live in an age where globally we can see that's still an issue. Right? People are still afraid of death. It, it, the Epicureans fixed that to some extent. They're like, hey, everyone's going to die. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. When you die, you're done. I mean, I'm really con making concise their philosophy, but it was there's nothing after. It, it was different than Plato who was in ideas and forms and ideals. They were radical materialists. I want it all. I want it now. There's nothing after this. After the here and now, there is no hereafter. So let's enjoy today. You know? And maybe you meet people who still have some degree of influence by Epicurean notions. Stoics, on the other hand, were a little bit more realistic. And maybe it, it, their personality drove them a certain way. That they, they couldn't overlook the hardships and struggles and difficulties in their life. They're like, no. It'd be nice if life could be all about happiness, but man, it's too hard. It's too difficult. I've got this issue and this issue and that issue that I can't overcome. So their idea was, let's, it's the pursuit of tranquility. Accept our lot. All right, this bad thing happened, okay? That's our fate. This bad thing happened. Let's, let's try to not be overly affected by the good or the bad. Let's just sort of, as much as we can, semi-detach and walk the middle ground. You just won the race. Thank you very much. All right. You know, you know your beloved family just died. That's okay. So there, here's the challenge. These are like extreme ends, and I think it, it's used in that way in this passage. Uh, one that indulges in all of the emotions and all of the feelings and gives themselves totally to them. The other, on the other end, that seems wants to detach from those things and find some sort of 
inner tranquility and peace, whereas the other one's all about outer enjoyment and pleasure, all and, and every extreme in between. But what are they doing? They're all trying to answer this simple question. What is the purpose of life? What are we supposed to live for? What is this all about? Where is this all going? And for them, it, it ends up being a multitude of different answers. You know, whether it is uh, Epicurus's uh, uh, philosophy or Zeno's, which ends up being the Stoic philosophy, it, it doesn't matter. People are saying, give me a well-thought-out way to understand life. Present something that m satisfies my outlook. They were all looking for an ideology. And so you got different people in different groups, but you get these different groups. Even within churches, you get different groups. And within uh, political areas, you get different groups. And it's into this, uh, this circumstance and this place that Paul now comes, and, and, and this is what it says. I want to go, go with me to verse 16. It says, now Paul was waiting. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So the first thing I want us to see is this, uh, with, that the city was full of idols basically was a testimony to this. All these people, they live lives deceived by empty pursuits. Every single person, and, and that's, that's the reality of Athens at that time. You've got to remember, this is where the gospel has not gone yet. Which means every single person in Athens, their life is lived for no good purpose. No hope. All their confidence as to the purpose and meaning of life, wrong. All of the things that they have invested value in, wrong. And Paul has come into that circumstance and he sees how deceived they are as the place is full of idols. And it's full of idols in a few different ways. Uh, again, part of idolatry, the shocking thing about them, Psalm 135 says this in verse uh, 15 and following. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the works of human hands. I always am amazed by that because the scriptures like to point that out. In reality, all of creation is the work of God's hands. He's the potter, we're the clay. He has made us all. And idolatry, in some sense, tries to turn it around. And the pot is trying to somehow decide the character and plan and dictate to the potter. I mean, if the clay was, lit, was trying to dictate to a potter, what does the potter do? Yeah, he smashes the clay and he starts again. Generally speaking, it's not, so clay, what should I make today of you? I mean, now note this, you could get the odd madman who, who thinks like that. But nonetheless, the clay doesn't actually respond to him. And it's just a lump. We are that lump. So that's pretty humbling. But, but it, they have mouths. They can fashion their mouths. But they don't speak. I mean, you can, go, you can give them an ornate mouth, even one where, where the tongue is slightly protruding from the mouth. It still can't speak. Now, again, we live in a day and age where maybe you could lodge a, a speaker inside of there and you could work a little microphone scenario and, and seem to make it speak, but that's not still, it's not speaking. Someone's speaking through it. Um, now, we do know in the book of Revelation that there is the warning that there is going to be uh, an idol that is made to which life is permitted to be given to it by the beast and the false prophet, and it will speak. That's going to be a crazy notion. But... Generally speaking, they can't do anything. They just sit there. I mean, they're basically stuffed animals. 
It says they have ears, uh, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. I mean, I mean you, you see that. You shout at them, you whisper, they don't lean in. There, there's no response. You clap your hands, they don't blink their eyes because uh, they're, they're, they're shocked by the sound. It's, it's unresponsive because it's nothing. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. He goes so far to say, the ears do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Now, here's the, the frightening part in this unfolding. Look at verse 18. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. What does that mean? Those who are in a circumstance of idolatry are ultimately in the same condition as the idol. They have eyes, but they cannot see, mouths, but cannot speak, ears that cannot hear. They, they have no breath or no life in them. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. It says it this way, if you go with me to Isaiah chapter 44 speaks of just the darkness in this. It says, look, in verse 19, no one considers and there's no knowledge or discernment to say for the person to figure it out. They cut down a tree. Half of it they burn. Right? They bake bread on its coals. They warm themselves with it. They roast some meat. And shall I make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down for a block of wood? The very same tree, part of it you use to cook your meat. Part of it you use to keep warm. And the rest of it, you're going to pray to it. You're going to worship it. It, it, it. it should defy the mind. But what the scripture is saying is, they don't even have the knowledge to ask themselves that because we're darkened in our understanding. It says, he feeds on ashes, verse 20, a deluded heart has led him astray. And that's what would often happen. You find, for the most part, many of the nations that are given to idolatry are given to pluralism. What I mean by that is, not just one God. You know, I like this one. You know, when I go to this one, he seems to answer me better than this one. Really? And so people begin to pick and choose their favorite gods. Well, this one, he never gives me nothing, so I don't want anything to do with him. So even you shop and select your god according to, I want Ares, that guy, he's a god of war. Ooh, I want that one as opposed to, you know, this, is, this guy here, he just kind of runs around and flitters and gives messages, and this one's all lovey-dovey, I ain't interested in that. But that guy, he's tough, he's, my, he's mine. And people identify in some ways with different gods. But note this, and the scriptures remind us even of this strong warning in Romans chapter 1. It says this, the wrath of God is re revealed from heaven, in verse 18 of Romans 1, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the scriptures say this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's the condition of men apart from the grace of God. They give in to the philosophies, they give in to the religion, they give in to the idolatry and ideologies of this world because why? They're ungodly, as we're all born ungodly. And it is because of that inherent, innate ungodliness that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth is declared, now we reject it. Maybe some it's an offense. Maybe some it's foolishness. But we, the, the nature of man is to reject it. And, and what's weird is we reject a glorious, a powerful and holy God and somehow lay hold of and venerate lesser gods. I mean, I, my mind always w was shocked by that. We, we talked about it, uh, I think, two Sundays ago, three Sundays ago, in, in Sunday morning, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, right? And they take it into Dagon's temple. The next day, Dagon is fallen down. 
next to the ark. So they set it back up, wondering what sort of accidental fall took place. And the next day when it's done, it's not only fallen, its hands are severed off and so is its head. This thing is dead and can do nothing. And yet, what do they do? They still don't turn from Dagon. They, they, they decide, well, we better get this thing away from our God. How come you don't stop for a moment and say, maybe this is the real God. Maybe this is the God we ought to follow. Then they take it to all their different places and they get their various tumors until finally they say, we got to get rid of this thing and send it back. Because they, they had no way to deal with it. Even, even in my mind, I, I, you think of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the report came to the scribes and the Pharisees. He, every, many are coming to believe because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those Jews, their intention at that point, you, you, they, I would think they should pause and say, Oh my, he raised a man from the dead? We were wrong. He is the Messiah. He is the life. We better listen to him and we better follow him. Too. No, what did they do? We got to kill that man. Now that he's done this, everyone's going to follow. Well, what about you? Everyone's going, well, maybe, maybe we've got to kill Lazarus too because this is what's, what, what they're doing. And, and the scripture gives us these, these strong reminders. Uh, again, from the beginning, and we've talked about this often, in the garden, how many gods were there? One. When Noah came through the flood, how many gods were there? One. Uh, now, though in the annals of human history, you might say there's a multiplicity of gods by what we call them, there really is and ever has only been one God right? But the scriptures, they say, look, it was plain to them. Even when God divided the nations and they went their different ways and they, they all were going to have different languages, how many gods were there? There was just one. When they all distributed and went their ways, there was only one God. But what happens is each of those nations, though they knew this God had delivered them through the flood, he had shown his wrath against unrighteousness in bringing the flood. This is a powerful, true, and living God. Shortly thereafter, though they knew him, though he's evident in the power of creation, though the heavens declare his handiwork, what do they do? They make gods of their own devices. Goes on to say... Uh, they became futile in their thinking. Verse 21, foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's what's shocking. As time goes by, they, they, they don't think that they're digressing as they walk away from God. They think they're becoming wise. Men somehow think when they devise an origin of the cosmos that does not involve God but involves something blowing up, something going ba 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 bang And you ask, and I often ask those people, so what was it that went bang? You know, and don't, don't say the big, because that's not an answer. What went bang? Well, all of matter and energy. Well, where did that come from? Are you telling me that just was? has no beginning, no origin. You, you, you say, my faith is foolish because I will proclaim a God who has no beginning. You proclaim matter and energy that has no beginning. We both believe in something that has no beginning. I believe by grace and through revelation in, in, in a self-existent, sovereign creator who is all-wise. And that his wisdom can be shown in his power and in his order. You believe 
in some eternal substance, cosmic dust that somehow, not only, that somehow on its own developed life, and on its own developed intelligence, and on its own, what is this? You know, it's kind of like thinking if you don't train your dog, on its own he'll figure he shouldn't make a mess in the house. He's not going to figure that out. It's going to keep messing up the house. If there's not wisdom and guidance and order, yeah, it's just shocking that foolishness that men claiming to be wise and it says in verse 23 they exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and so you get people who worship snakes and worship trees and worship birds and men and maybe the men end up being in uh, uh, shades of blue instead of normal skin colors. Maybe they've got more arms than your ordinary men. Maybe they're uh, more sizable or, or smaller, whatever it may be. But the scripture says this, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship the creature rather than the creator. And I want to note this as well. The idea of idolatry, uh, not only in terms of the actual idols because there's a sense in which we can say but that's nothing that's a stone i could uh, you know i could kick it i could spit on it ain't nothing gonna happen because it is nothing but many of these religions there is the active engagement of the enemy to press people into patterns and practices of, 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 that are abominable and that are vile. And so that in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that even though idols themselves are nothing, that there are demons actually involved within the veil of that religion. It says, I don't imply that uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. I don't imply that what sacrifice, pagan sacrifice, uh, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Now, why does he say that? Because actually the idol has never requested anything at all, ever, because it can't talk. And so the ideas and the the attending things and practices that are then developed within the context of religion are significantly the deceitful inclinations of men and oftentimes even strongly influenced by the doctrine of demons. It says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. But I want to note to you this, the scriptures tell us about other idolatries. The very end of 1 John chapter uh, 5 the close of that book, out of nowhere seemingly, simply ends by saying, keep yourselves from idols. And you're like, there was nothing really in that book that was talking so much about idolatry. It was love your brother and, and, turn and practice righteousness. There were a lot of things in there, but all of a sudden he says, keep yourself from idolatry. Now, most of us will not have idols in America. Generally, is not idols in terms of sculptures that are sacred that we think are somehow God or representations of God but the scriptures remind us of other idolatries as we move forward Colossians chapter 5 3 verse 5 says this Colossians 3 5 put to death then what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry so you'll meet a lot of people who will say, yeah, yeah, I, idols is what they do in India. They do idolatry there. And some will say Catholicism has a tendency towards idolatry. But then they think, we don't have any idols. You're not greedy. You're not covetous. You don't see all that stuff and really, really want it. You don't find uh, people around you who they're what they are living for is to get more. I want that, and I want that. And I will consider my life in, you know, and, and part of it comes even in ourselves. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? 
Yeah, I'll tell you where I see. You know, nobody ever says, uh, sitting on the side of a busy street with a, my hand out. Uh, hopefully not. But, but often those kind of phrases lead to, now, we, we want to work hard. And we're thankful that we live in a world where, where we work hard and we're faithful. We work with integrity. We work to the honor of God. Oftentimes, that might be that it is recognized and opportunities are given and advancement is given and abundance may be supplied. Okay? But the goal isn't abundance. The goal is absolute faithfulness. Our ambition is that in everything we conduct ourselves with integrity and with godliness, you know, and knowing that we do, we pursue the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to us. It's the kingdom of God that is first and foremost in our mind. But uh, this covetousness uh, creeps in. Jesus will even say something like this in, well, not something like, he will say this in Luke 14, verse 26 and following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is that saying? You're foremost by a far measure. Love for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has to be far, ought to be far more than any other person or relationship. People can become idols. Jobs can become idols. Objects and ambitions can become idols. You know, I, I remember uh, my sixth grade teacher, who was a very nice man, but he was very motivated by, in those days, still prevails. You ever heard of the power of positive thinking? You know, you know and in sixth grade, he used to, to lead us on these guided journeys where we would try to visualize ourselves uh, successful in all these things. And, and, he, and I, he would tell me and tell the class, someday I'm going to drive a Mercedes. Okay, uh, all right. Uh, but what's interesting is, about my junior year in high school... He drove up to my house in a clunker, beat-up Mercedes. But it was a Mercedes. And he was wanting to show me that he was driving up in a Mercedes. Did it have a little bit of rust here and there? Yeah. Is it a vehicle I would have wanted? No. But he needed to achieve that to somehow validate himself. His validation was in that. Is that how we validate ourselves? That's how the world validates themselves. We look to receive our commendation from God. You know, indeed, the world may not validate us in any way. They may think us low, they may treat us with dishonor, they may treat us with disrespect. But we know this when He comes with His recompense, He also comes with vindication. And so we wait. But it's important to know that if it, it, no other person, even it goes on to say, um, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, th that idea of bearing cross, you really want to see how that unpacks. It, it's unpacked really in uh, Luke chapter 9. Jesus says this, if anyone would come after, after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And follow me. The idea of bearing our own crosses is a denying of ourselves and living for another. When Christ took up the cross, you remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? He knew that the cross was set before him. And though there was a joy in what he would accomplish through that, he would despise the shame of the cross, and for the joy set before him, he would do it. But as he pled with the Father, 
Did you get the sense in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was like, I can't wait. This is going to be great. Or was he really clear with, with blood sweat drops crying out to God repeatedly if there is any way for this cup to pass? If there is any way for this agony, this suffering, this misery not to happen to me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That is the idea of taking up the cross. It is, you know what? I don't live for me. I don't live for my will. I, whatever comes, by God's grace, I will bear it. If it is affliction, if it is vexation, if it is agony, if it is suffering, if it is death, I will bear it. Why? Because he matters more to me than my life. Everyone who will try to secure their life, he who loves their life in this world will lose it. But he who gives up his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. Oh, the richness of God's word. Then it goes on lastly and says in Luke 14, 33, um, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that's not that we can't enjoy. God has given us all these things that we can enjoy, and we give him thanks for those things, but they're not our hope. They come and they go. All these things can be taken away in a single day, you know, it can be burned up with fire. They can be taken away. It, you know, it, it, you, you get this tornado and it hits this house and not that house. And those things are gone. How many times do you turn on the news and people will have all of their keepsakes and all of their pictures that they've saved up lifelong. And even from their grandparents and all of those things gone, irrecoverable. Well, I want, to, I want us to always be aware of this. Everything you have, everything you ever get, when you die, is gone for you. Naked you came into this world, and naked you shall return. You, you'd brought nothing with you, and you can take nothing with you when you leave. And yet we live as if it's about all the things that we leave. We ought to live with the reality that it's about leaving and who we're leaving for. God help us. And so this, this uh, strong sense of idolatry, we want to be careful. Now, noting this also, he was, as he saw these things, and I find the, the language there interesting, as he looked at these things, it says, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, uh, note this. Provoked is a simple term there. The idea is it was agitated. You know, uh, really the, 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 the first thought that I wanted us to see is that they, in, in Athens, they live lives deceived by empty pursuits. The second thing I want us to strongly see in this passage is that he was livid and lamenting the deceived culture. This idea, uh, provoked, carries a sense of irritation carries a sense of, of anger and frustration with it, as well as, as, as sort of a, a heartbrokenness. It's, it, I, I hope and pray this, that we don't become callous to the wickedness around us. It's easy for us to say, well, that's just the world. The world is fallen, it's sin, it's gonna sin, no big deal. It's easy for us, and we, sometimes we talk about desensitizing. You see a lot of violence, and you can become desensitized about it. Whether it be on video games or beyond films, we talk about how people can be desensitized. We see evil, and we can be desensitized. Those of us who are living in this present generation is all, have already seen that with, with, with regard to immorality of, and homosexuality. There was a time in which the entire culture looked upon that 
with disgust, as an abomination, as an evil, as a perversion. There were times actually where almost worldwide countries had laws against such practices. And now it's becoming so commonplace for many of us who did not grow up with it all around us. We're still incensed. We see this this boisterousness in these videos and promoting of these things and and choosing of these people who are are gender dysphoric to represent now uh, ads and clothing. And we're, we're, you know, it rubs us the wrong way. What about the next generation? They grow up. And that's normal. We're actually seeing in the culture, they grow up in a way where sin and perversion are normal. And morality, biblical morality, is bigoted. You remember, there was a time. There was a time where, where adultery was illegal. And then there was a time it was no longer illegal, but if you were the person that caught in adultery, you lose everything in the divorce. Now, does it bear any relevance on the outcome of things? None at all. God help us. He would see these things. Remember, this is not unique to him seeing that in that place. Remind you of what Scripture says about Lot in 2 Peter 2, verse 7. It says of God, he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteousness, his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I worry about that. Not just for you, for me. I don't want to take lightly the sin around us. Want it to be provoked, not so that I act forth in anger, but that I, I don't sit back in silence. I tell you, it, when you're desensitized, the outcome of it is silence. If there is some sort of inner outrage, then there is going to be some degree of outspokenness. I've got to share with them this life leads to destruction. You've got to turn from these things. You can't live like this. This dishonors God. You cannot, you cannot make these secondary ideologies primary. Ultimately, all that matters is the glory of God and the salvation that is in Christ. It says this uh, further in Psalm chapter 119, verse 30, 136. It says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people did not keep your law. In verse 139 of 119, he says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. Maybe that's one of the prayer requests we've got to start asking. God, don't let me become desensitized to sin. Make me someone who grieves over sin so that I go to them and lovingly confront them and call them out of their sin, call them to repentance. He goes so far in verse 158 of Psalm 119 to say, I look at the faithless with disgust or loathing because they do not keep your commandments. You know, so all of these, these things, but this is how, this is how it unfolds. In Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 39, verse 1 to 3, he says this, I said, I, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth and I will muzzle it so long as I'm in the presence of the wicked. I'm not going to say anything in the presence of the wicked. You know, it's not going to have an effect. It's not going to change them. I'm just going to shut it down. He says in verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me and as I mused, the fire burned and then I spoke. The reason why I say we want to pray that we don't become desensitized because we want that distress burn within us as we see the world around us and its wickedness and its deceit so that we can't be quiet. It says it this way in uh, Jeremiah 20 verse 9. He said this, if I say, 
I will not mention him or speak in his name anymore. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot. That's my hope and prayer for all, for all of us, that we just can't hold it in anymore. We are emboldened by the Spirit with a zeal for the holiness of God. And then lastly, I want us to, to note this. In the midst of all that, that was happening, where it, it, he might look at that and say, oh, this is hopeless in this city. They are already all given. They're full of themselves. They're full of their, their ideas and their opinions. Forget it. No. He, I would say he leaned into the labor of the word. Where it seemed the hardest, he doubled down in his effort. What I mean by that is, in all of the other places we would see, he would go, and for three Sundays in a row, he would go to the synagogue, right? And then only after the synagogue kind of shuts things down, he goes to the others. Here, he's so absolutely provoked, he goes to the synagogue, and he goes to the market. It, it, it says it uh, uh, so, so strongly in this passage, he, he went to them every uh, Every day in the marketplace, listen to verse uh, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So, uh, you know, when, when his heart was moved, when things got harder, he did not become more silent. He became more active, more energetic, more intentional. So may God help us, and I want to just draw our attention again to these things. Uh, I'm going to close by, say, uh, by saying this. Note this. They, they called him to speak and preach because it says this in verse 18. They thought he was preaching foreign uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Yeah. And so that idea does not work with the Epicureans. There's nothing after this life. It doesn't matter if people will identify, if they will agree, we declare the truth. And we believe that the spirit of truth will make known to those that God has purposed for salvation. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we see these three things in this passage. One, it was a place in a community where the lives were deceived by empty pursuits. That was not unique to Athens. That's every place, every country around the world. And I urge upon us as well, let us not be deceived and distracted that our lives would also be caught up in empty pursuits. God first and foremost. Secondly, we see that he was livid and lamenting the deceived culture. God, help us to not become desensitized to the wickedness, the compromises, and the immorality around us. May it stir us. May it burn within us so that we cannot but speak. And then thirdly, the harder it gets, let's lean into it all the more. Because here's the thing, we know that the day is drawing near. And this word of the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And then the end will come. So let's get this message out. Let's serve to usher in the end by getting the message out. We know this, Jesus will not lose a single one of all the Father has given him, but raise them up on the last day. So the second coming will only come and the elect will be gathered from one end of the heaven to the other. So until all of the elect are saved, he ain't coming. So let's get out there with that message so that we might, by the grace of God, deliver the gospel to the lost sheep that they might be saved that he might come quickly. All right, let's pray. Lord, so thankful for your word. 
Lord, and only you do know who are the elect, and you could, by your own powerful, providential means, bring it to absolute accomplishment in this moment. And so we know that you are not dependent upon our limitations that would somehow force a delay. There is no delay. You have fixed everything by your perfect timing, but we thank you that you've given us a role to play in your unfolding purposes. And I pray that you would be pleased to use what we've considered today to provoke us, to see and to sense sin and wickedness around us and not be desensitized, to see the deceitfulness of the lives and ambitions and desires of this world and how it ultimately leads to naught. And Lord, that we would be just all the more committed to live for you, to love you, and to let your gospel and grace be known to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.